Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is author David Patton. To be able to say that is amazing because David is functionally illiterate. He was born with severe cognitive challenges at a time when dyslexia and autism were little understood. His parents were well-educated and caring, but he was repeatedly misdiagnosed and left school unable to read or write. He made a living dealing drugs, but David came to realize that his limitations did not have to define who he was. He discovered he had a genius for abstract mathematics, and that eventually led to a successful career debugging computer systems. Unlike many autistic children, David had a deep sensitivity and insight into people that allowed him to have meaningful and affectionate human relationships. Today, he is the father of two grown, productive, and happy children, and he and his wife of 30 years, a physician, live in Hawaii. With the aid of specialized technology, David has written the story of his life. Dummy, a memoir, was so moving I literally couldn't put it down. So David Patton, welcome. I am really honored to have you with us. David, um, your life was really colored by this uh, birth defect that you had um, called autistic spectrum disorder. Um, can you tell us how did that affect you? Uh, how did that change your life? Yeah, I, I had tremendous difficulties with um, at, at birth and childhood first. It, it affected me in different ways at different ages. And from uh, birth, I, I had um, I was very colicky and uh, sick, so that uh, um, and I learned to talk. I didn't learn to talk till I was about four, uh, which is typical of autistic spectrum. Um, I seemed to live in my own world. Um, didn't seem interested in other people or being aware of other people. And that extended into school, into not being able to read, uh, struggling with um, understanding social situations, and uh, being able to adapt to new situations. Mm -hmm. um, as I got older, the not being able to read kind of came forefront. And not being able to code and decode uh, reading between the lines in social situations, the rules of the road, sort of, and decoding meaning from people that maybe weren't being direct. I tended to be very literal. Um, the biggest effect in terms of my own um, personal feeling of it, my own personal experience of it, really had to do with my inability to keep up with other kids in school and, and in my home life, uh, in terms of that, it was just sort of a, a uh, awareness that I probably wasn't going to have a career or a family in the same way that most would. It was interesting that this this kind of future vision of n never being able to have a family was terribly important to you, even from early childhood. Well, you know, and I think this is a this is a difficult thing for me to explain to even professionals that very well understand autism spectrum and 
I think that I connected because of the way my mother raised me um, and maintained a connection to me from a very young age or, uh, just by holding me 20 hours a day as I was colicky. Um, I was on adult doses of barbiturates and she, she um, was up 20 hours a day holding me and maybe putting me down two to four hours at night and getting some sleep herself. Um, I, I think through those years, just maintaining that kind of connection with me and holding my gaze, making sure I didn't withdraw into myself, uh, gave me access to a sort of, uh, I don't, I'm finding a word here, biological or sort of um, physical, just physical, connection to someone uh, made that my priority experience of the world and I tried to experience the world through that which is a very very different experience I believe autism is much or at least from my experience is really about overwhelm and shutting down from overwhelm and the experiences that overwhelm you um, and uh, I think there's many causes for autism but symptomatically much of it's trying uh, kind of a self-preservation uh, shutting down uh, and staying in your own world to try and maintain a sort of comp compartmentalizing experience and um, sensory experience particularly mm -hmm. to protect the overwhelm. And I think that through my mother's connection there, I was able to stay connected in a human way in the way most autistic particularly oh, just any overwhelmed person at that, that young age would have difficulty doing. Yes. Uh, a world that, um, I, that I think many others wouldn't have had. I, I would say that your mother's uh, early attentions to you were, were quite heroic. and She was a psychologist, wasn't she? Yeah, a child psychologist, in fact. And... Mm -hmm. um, I think I was fortunate for that reason. She also um, got a, psychi a psychiatrist involved uh, in second grade when it became obvious I was going to flunk. And I suspect he told her that I had to be strictly honest with me. You know, she had to be strictly honest with me about everything and the consequences of everything if I was going, if he was going to work with her, uh, with me. And, um, uh, that's when she told me that I would be uh, institutionalized if, you know, when I, I pressured her to find out when I was flunking, what, what is going to happen to me? I can't read. Am I going to have a family? Am I ever going to have kids? Uh, that connection with, uh, to family was important to me. And, uh, and imagining the future, I couldn't imagine it without that. So um, when when she told me that I may have to be, she wasn't about to, she felt that her job as a parent primarily was to raise independent children. And so after 18, I was on my own, and she made that clear to me at that time, that if I wasn't capable of all of that, that I'd be, have, probably have to be institutionalized. And, I, and that sort of sent me uh, in another direction. Yeah. Two, two thoughts come to mind. Um, one is that there are a lot of 
children, there, there's a real rise in autism today. And there's a certain talk about um, highly sensitive children being born on the planet. And I'm wondering if um, autism isn't a reaction, a kind of a global reaction of these highly sensitive children to protect themselves from the, the bombardment of, of uh, electronic waves, television, noise, etc. You know, I, I hope I can explain this clearly. I agree with you uh, on this. And uh, maybe just to be a little more nuanced with it, um, I believe a lot of what's going on is, you know, you, you hear of in the past or uh, maybe in more primitive cultures, theoretically, or the way we call it, primitive cultures, um, kids often were held for the first few years of their lives universally in, in some cultures. and. I think that as, as life becomes more complex and at younger and younger ages we're brought into situations that can be overwhelming for kids, particularly if they start out hypersensitive. And I think that there's probably thousands of reasons, maybe as many reasons as there are kids for, for, for these sensitivities. Um, it can be allergies, it can be just the way the kid you know, was born, the way they're built. Um, and with more and more of these external influences, um, the tendency towards overwhelm, particularly with, with the demands on kids at younger and younger ages, um, and the stimulation that goes on in a day, if you think of all of the things that happen to a person in a day, um, they're far more, they're exposed to far more, uh, than they ever have been before. And that, that, tendency into overwhelm, uh, I think, is what, you know, for me, um, I tried to control and separate my sensory experience. And uh, that is symptomatically much of what caused me problems in my learning disabilities and everything else. And I think the more that we can maybe give kids a, a, a more uh, Connected and stay aware of the kids, of the kids' overwhelm tendency to overwhelm, and give them ways to deal with that at younger and younger, and and even into older ages. Um, the more we'll be able to adapt, because we're not going to be able to stop all the changes that are happening and the and the levels of uh, stimulation that they're experiencing to some degree as they get older. But at younger ages, when we have that control, I think it would be important for us to be more attentive to that. Yeah. Well, when you were um, very small and your mother was so involved with you, she got a, a nurse to take care of your older brother and pretty much cut herself off from him, which did not endear you to him at all. And he became one of your chief tormentors, um, as did uh, kids at school. So you were you were bullied. Um, how did you how did you cope with this yeah um i i had a, this is this was difficult um to explain in the book to some degree um in in that i think my older brother there's a point in as a toddler 
that um, I think if you if you you know put titles on it, it, it can be narcissist or sociopath or whatever. I'm not sure what all those those really mean when you're talking about an individual and a human uh, in a personal way. Um, but there's a and at that point, that's the point he was where he really had to had been um, abandoned um, at that point from my mother and uh, great jealousies and stuff so I, I don't want to place blame on him for that but in fact that played a big part in uh, my experience at the time and some of the difficulties I had and I I dealt with that um, in you know in many ways I'm not sure how to um, be specific without getting into some stories, but um, it I became uh, adept at self-defense and, and fighting, and um, I came to the point in my life where I realized I may have to be killed or kill someone, and it sort of colored my view of the world to some degree. <laughs> that, that would color one's view. Um, a lot of kids who are brought up in abusive situations of one kind or another um, develop this hypervigilance that often um, uh, leads to the development of a sixth sense or, or, or their intuition is sometimes tipping them over even into um, a psychic awareness. Um, did you have a sense of this? Well, I think it did have moments of that. I don't know that I would. I, I didn't identify it that as that at the time. I didn't have a culture that I grew up in that would be aware of that. Um, but I became very sensitive to people's motivations, and uh, in a sense, their psychology. And I don't mean that as as awareness of what psychology was, but in terms of what motivated people and what they were going to do next, why they were going to do things. And I wasn't comfortable with situations unless I did understand people's motivations. So I, I think in a certain way I became certainly hypervigil, just as you said, but also hyper-aware of um, and, and a need to know and understand, sort of take the uh, curtain away from the Wizard of Oz and understanding what are people's motivations, what's going on behind the scenes. And I had a deep curiosity and obsession, I would almost say, <laughs> with mm -hmm. understanding uh, the nuance of situations and, and what, was, what was people's motivations. You had uh, an incredibly strong desire to make your way in life, to find a way that you could succeed. And um, you even went to this very tough inner city Chicago kind of school for thugs and losers. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about that experience. How did that toughen you up and move you into uh, really what became your first profession? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm going to go back to junior high because that was a a big transition for me when when I was um, if I could just step back one second uh, a little bit into uh, 
when I was seven and my mother told me I might be um, institutionalized when I grew up, I made a plan of attempting of, of committing suicide. I found <clears throat> mercury, which I had understood from my father that if you ate it, it would kill you and there was nothing anybody could do to help you. At 14, in junior high, then I attempted suicide with the mercury and uh, ended up in a mental institution for a while. Um, and what, what coming out of that, going back into junior high was uh, difficult for me and I got into some scrapes with some bullies and ended up having a problem with the principal so I was kicked out of school. I had to go to then the uh, continuation school is what they called it then. I'm not sure they're around now. But when you couldn't go to the school you of your district uh, at the time in Chicago, um, I went to to a central, it was called Central Y, but it was a YMCA government sponsored school. Um, and it was really for kids that had not been able to finish school in their original school. And so it was a group of kids with various kinds of problems, but a lot of gang involvement. And uh, at the time I went, although it wasn't always like this, it was primarily um, inner city black culture. Um, and I found coming from the junior high where statistically I found, and it's been proven out later, that the most popular kids tended to be the people that could lie the best. Um, I think that's an interesting statistic. And I tended to be very literal. I, I had trouble weaving my way through that. At this school, everybody was incredibly literal, and I found it much easier socially to understand. It was a lot more violent, but for me, in a sense, I felt more at home. And How fascinating. And, and through that, then I tried to learn the, sort of the rules of the road in this, and it was a great training ground for me to uh, understand my limits and their limits and, and maybe deal with these situations the best I could. I, I don't know if that answers your question. But. That, that is a fascinating insight. I want to go back to your suicide. Um, how, how many years were you carrying around that vial of mercury? It, it played such a big part in your being able, in your ability to cope with life because it kind of gave you this sense that if all else fails, I have a way out. Yes, exactly. And it became, in a sense, a, a real friend, my best friend. And in an odd way, although it's what I used to try and kill myself later, I think it was from 7 to 14, so about seven years I held that. Um, it was first in a sock drawer, and then I found better hiding places for it as I got older. But um, I think it saved my life. I think I would have tried something else sooner if I hadn't had something so um, tangible to me. Um, and so in some sense, it helped me have the strength and, the, and the, I don't know what to call it, but some kind of connection with something that gave me the strength to go for that seven years. So in some ways, I think it, it saved my life um, up until I, I attempted suicide. And... Um, uh, the, I found out that, in fact, 
I took the wrong kind of mercury. I took this liquid mercury where there's another kind of mercury that um, would have... Uh, would have done the job. Yeah, would have done the job, I felt. <laughs> yeah, I, was very, I felt very foolish. Well, but when you, when you woke up in hospital mm-hmm. and realized that you hadn't succeeded... You went through a kind of an existential dark night of the soul that you described very poignantly in your book. Tell us, tell us about what you were feeling. Oh, it it was shock first. I mean, I went through, I would say, stages almost. It went fairly quickly um, uh, between waking up in the hospital and then being transferred to the um, psychiatric hospital. Um, but because uh, it was only half a day or so to process all of that. But uh, I went from realizing that it didn't work to realizing I was going to have to face everybody now, which was horrifying to me, and facing my mother and her hurt. Um, she had trouble making eye contact, and so did I. Um <clears throat> And it was it was obvious to me that she was separating from me on some level and needed to for the sake of the rest of the family and herself and um, and particularly from my younger brother, uh, I realized that I hurt people. This may sound completely stupid. I think in a way at 14, I was, it seems foolish now to me, but I didn't, I literally didn't realize how much I was going to hurt everybody uh, by doing what I did. And I, I realized that I thought it was my life I was doing something with. And I realized at that moment that my life wasn't my life. It was the life of people that I cared about. And a, a real transition in perspective of service and what life is about happened for me at that point. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, you met um, your girlfriend, Donna, uh, who plays a, a large part in the narrative. Uh, tell us about that relationship. Well, um, I had previously gone through trying to find connections with people that I knew I needed help. I, I wasn't able to read. I was If I was going to survive in the world after 18, I knew I was going to need some assistance. And I was willing to help somebody else. I wanted to be of service at that point. I realized that that's what or I found for me that was what life was good was about made gave it value and um so i looked for relationships that could fulfill both a need practically and an emotional need and i traveled all over the place in chicago through subways and stuff looking for what world i might belong in because the one i was in it didn't seem i belonged in and i and went through a few relationships. And then at uh, 15, uh, actually at 14, I met her, and 
she had her own needs. She was schizophrenic. Um, it was the diagnosis at the time. Uh, later, maybe multiple personalities is, you know, it's hard to know that kind of thing. But, um, but certainly had delusional moments, hearing voices. Uh, mostly, though, she was uh, very functional. She got good grades in school. Sort of an amazing and brilliant person. Um, but had very big problems that we both seemed to have problems bigger than anybody around us could help us with. And um, being abandoned uh, by society, it felt, both of us found each other and mm -hmm. uh, tried to help each other in, in the best ways we knew how to get through it. Your relationship with Donna reminds me of the prayer of St. Francis. You know, if I'm hungry, give me someone to feed. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of what healed us is having each other to help. Um, and we certainly needed each other's. And, and uh, even though others outside of us judged us for sort of what was called then symbiotic, I think it's called... Um, uh, uh, something else now. Codependent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, codependent now. But, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and we put these things on people, but we don't necessarily understand what what they think they're dealing with and why they make those decisions to be codependent. And, um, you know, when, when a person has bigger problems than they think they can deal with or even than the world is helping them deal with, um, codependency seems like the appropriate uh, way to go, and it did it did to us at the time. You grew up awfully fast. Uh, I mean, by the age of fourteen, fifteen, you were a full time drug dealer or well established drug dealer. You had a girlfriend. You were supporting each other. You were finding your way through the criminal underworld of Chicago, um, and yet you seem to have retained a kind of a core innocence and uh, yearning for, for connection that was uh, so touching. Oh, thank you. You know, I think that this is something... It's not well understood by people, but people in the autism spectrum are some of the most honest and, and because they, they can't handle the complexities of dishonesty. Um, there's a sincerity, and I, and I don't know, yeah, I wish I had better words for it, um, but I think there's a deep sincerity in, in autism spectrum, and I think that's what I was engaged in was that I was looking for, um, and from a very young age, integrity was critically important to me. It, had, it, it uh, and I think that's actually what led later into a true, uh, real spiritual process for me. It's the depth of integrity and looking for integrity at, at, at greater and greater levels. And that meant both integrity of others, but my own personal integrity. And um, and I think that's what offered the possibility of deep relationships for me. Um, and 
I'm sorry, I lost track of your question. It's such a sad commentary on the world that you found a kind of integrity in this um, uh, high school with uh, criminals and drug dealers that you couldn't find in this, quote, normal, unquote, uh, environment or high exactly school. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it's it, it, um, it's an interesting thing that as a, as a little kid, I remember I, I have a tremendous emotional me- memory, not a not a um, linear, very good linear memory. But um, I remember looking around at adults and kids and just what was going on around me, just going, why would I want to talk? Everybody, everything's. Everybody talks about things that aren't important as a way and use words to talk about things that aren't important when, in fact, what's really going on is being diminished by all this talk. And so I think that's part of the reason I didn't decide to learn to talk until I was four. It just seemed um, an avoidance of reality rather than an engagement of it. Um, You know, and I think that there was a certain way in which that helped me get along at Central Y and in other situations and just drug dealing itself is, you know, I think people detected a certain uh, credibility with me. And if I said to somebody, I'm going to hurt you, they knew I meant it. This is just, uh, I think you read integrity in people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I did, you know, being short, Jewish, suburban, uh, white guy in in a school like this and trying to deal drugs and and let me just say i i really just dealt the 60s psychedelics and marijuana i didn't get into addictive drugs at all i i didn't feel that was uh, for me um i it and also i i would say the getting into the dealing of drugs i got in through first selling candy and then uh, the, the universal gateway drug cinnamon toothpicks into <laughs> selling uh, drugs. It, was, it seemed a natural progression to me uh, <laughs> as I you know, grew from age to age. Um, and at, at, at one sense there was an innocence to it. I, I, I appreciate you getting that from that. Uh, in another sense, there was a life and death about it. And I think the measure of society is really in the depth and, and, and honesty of a society and is, is really about do they try to deny, does that society try to deny death, uh, hide death, um, sequester that truth basically mm-hmm. and i found this situation so much more um real in a in a very real sense um to me you know from my sense of things that than the junior high was i didn't have the sunday night terrors of going to school even though i didn't know if i'd live necessarily i'm sure i thought i'd live but without getting hurt or or some challenge happening i I was much more comfortable with that kind of stress than the whole uh dishonesty i found in the public schools Mm -hmm. you you went uh you sought out actually a uh therapeutic environment which turned out to be disastrous um 
it was just so painful to read, David. I don't even want to oh. discuss it here. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to explain what it was like. It was otherworldly. <laughs> it was like I joined another dimension or of reality or something. It had its own logic. Um, central. I, mean, I went through different phases, and I think everybody does go through different phases in their lives where each phase has its own rules and, and uh, reality to it. But this one was way out there. Oh, it was bizarre. And what I found so interesting was that you kept on, you, you kept there for nine months. I mean, part of the time you were practically a prisoner. But um, you wanted so much to be normal that you were willing to submit yourself to what was really sadistic uh, torture. Yeah, you know, um, I I think I didn't need nine months there. I have to say that I did do it. I was also very much focused. I really believed at the time, and it was much more like that in that age. You had to have a high school diploma if I ever wanted a government job or just the kinds of jobs that I thought I might be eligible for. I knew I wasn't going to go to university. Um, I felt. I needed a high school diploma, and she held out a high school diploma as a real. She was very convincing. She she um, had tremendous charisma. Mm. Uh, her name was Jackie Schiff, and uh, powerful, brilliant, brilliant. Probably one of the smartest people I knew or had ever been around, other than some of the um, major drug dealers I'd met. Um, but brilliant <laughs> and. Um, she, I almost, I wanted to understand her. It, it, I became fascinated, to be honest with you, I became fascinated with sociopaths. What makes them so brilliant? What makes uh, survival of the fittest, which is the world I knew I had to live in, which is, a, which is basically, you know, when it's brought to its peak, sort of, um, the best survivor in that kind of situation is a sociopath, and I knew I wasn't, and I was dying to find out what made sociopaths able, capable of not confusing their decision in their life with caring about other people. It was fascinating to me. And also, which is what I think what her approach was, but she also had real insight to what caused schizophrenia, which I thought would help my girlfriend. I was desperately trying to find answers for her and this high school diploma. I don't know if that explains it, but I was willing to take a tremendous amount of abuse, maybe, mm -hmm. although I didn't realize what it would ultimately come to, um, a death yeah, you know, they actually ended up murdering somebody there after I just after I left, and then um, I got a, a tied to a uh -huh. dresser and whipped myself. How did you come to realize that you did have um, saleable skills? Hmm. Well, I had different moments when I was very young, maybe seven to ten. I, I'm having trouble placing me as the exact age. My grandfather took me aside. And just to see if I could understand abstract thinking, which is really what turned out to be my strength, abstract uh, thinking. I'm, I've got an exceptionally 
high capacity for that. And um, he started teaching me his college level at the time. This is before electron, digital electronics was really being taught in schools and stuff. But he, we, we deal with base 10 in our society. It's one through, you know, one through 10 and then multiples of that. But he taught me base two, base three, base 16, base eight, so I could add and multiply within, and he taught me this first within a half hour, and I picked it up right away. I was able to subtract and um, add in these, and then in base 16, he found that I just naturally understood all of it, where he had had trouble in his earlier years. He was a uh, math instructor before he became a doctor and uh, was amazed, I mean, extremely amazed at how well I picked it up when his college students rarely uh, picked it up as easily or adapted to it as easily as I did. So there was some sign there. Then as I grew up, I ended up with be getting married at about uh, 20 um, and then had kids at 21, 23. I mean, excuse me, at 21 and then at 23 I had my first kid. And, uh, 22 and 23 I had my kids, excuse me. And this really put pressure on me in a, in a way where I realized what if I never learned how to read? I had to like give up everything I ever wanted to be any identity of who I was. And it was then that I started to rethink all possibilities. I gave up the idea of ever learning to read or ever getting a high school diploma. And it was really through giving up the identity I had and the hopes and dreams I had. It was like a death in the family to me to give that up. And I then got found help through uh, through a government program and then talked to local college, junior college, into letting me, without a high school diploma, take courses, and they read books into tape for me. I got into an electronics program, and through the books being read on tape and through it being a, sort of a logical program that I was going through electronics, I found I had an exceptional um, skill or knack for, and that's really when it all sort of clicked in for me. Mm-hmm. That that's such a, an amazing uh, story. I mean, it, it the fact that they were willing to admit you, you know, to go against the bureaucratic uh, framework and admit you without a high school diploma, and then read the books on tape for you, just speaks volumes for their enlightened uh, state at the time. So I think that's it, off I think to them. Yes, exactly. And um, forever, I'll be grateful for that. So um, at at some stage, you entered a spiritual community. What drew you there? Okay. Uh, um, I have to, again, sorry, take a step back. Um, Through the drug dealing I came to realize, and this is a lot of what Jackie Schiff actually helped me with realizing, was there's a um, logic, a natural logic to survival of the fittest, um, which is sort of paranoia, really, and it's what much of our culture is based on. And it's 
core logic, if you really look at the pattern, is is to become what you're afraid of, bigger and badder, or it takes many forms, but that's one. Mm-hmm. And I real I came to a point where I it goes into some detail in the book, but um, where a guy stole from me and had some interactions with my girlfriend. Um, and you were ready to hard kill. Hard to explain. And yeah. I, I felt I, if I was going to survive in this culture, I needed to kill him. And I went over, actually went over to his house to do that. And uh, I ultimately had to come to a point where I had to decide, is this the life is this who I want to be? And I had to, at that point, I decided, no, I don't want to become this person that I'm going to have to become. I'd seen myself do what I'd decide to do before. I'd crossed lines that were disturbing to me before when I attempted suicide. I crossed a line. Um, I tried at one point to kill my brother. I crossed a line. Um, I knew I could do it. But did I really want to be that person? And I realized I need to change my whole approach to life. And that's when I got out of the whole drug world and uh, realized that, no, I, I, what's, sort of what's the opposite of that? And it's about the heart. What's really the point of living in this world? And I realized it's about the heart for me. And it seems spiritual. Um, I couldn't go with the dogma of normal religion, so I, I started searching for what a spiritual process would be, and that's what drew me to it. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself during that process? I'm sorry, what was that? What did you learn about yourself? I mean, what, what, I'm, uh, what I'm aiming at is your your existential recognition that you are who you are who you really are yeah well you know at different points and you alluded to this earlier um when i was in the psychiatric hospital uh all pressure was sort of taken off uh i was just there and i couldn't do anything about it it was what i'd always been afraid of and there was something about all I don't really know what the mix was, but there was something about all of everything I'd ever been afraid of actually happening that freed me from the terror of it. And um, I sat in the hospital one night and just didn't, you know, I'd already given up whether I was going to live or die. I was willing to die. It was like I, I somehow gave up all attachments to everything and just was there in the moment that I was in without having it be attached at all to the past, future, I mean, excuse me, to the um, yeah, past or uh, future. It was just the present moment for me, and, and uh, it was ecstatic. And I'd never imagined that there was such a state of mind. And um, so I had kind of little clues along the way that there was something other than my way of thinking possible and uh really um i had a spiritual experience at one point where i became one with everything um and this is not none of this is drug induced at all um this is um and drugs did sort of open my mind to the possibility of other things but i thought that was just a 
disturbance of the mind in some way caused by drugs. But um, the uh, the ecstaticness, the 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 realization that I didn't have to be concerned with the past or the future, or connected to it, there became a thread for me to follow between those. And I realized I had to decide when I decided not to kill this guy that all I could do was the best I could do. This cheating life by trying to get around this corner and that corner um, wasn't going to work for me anymore. And in fact, I was curious, I became curious, what is life if I was just who I am without trying to be more or less than what I am, just lived with some kind of integrity, what would it turn out to be? And uh, that's really, uh, again, critical to the whole process. It's the thread that sort of led me through each stage where I had to relearn and rebuild my whole personality, the whole structure of how I looked at life at that point. Um, uh, does that answer the question? <laughs> yes, uh, and, and you you did it so uh, amazingly. Um, you you got a, a very uh, you started your own company, your consulting firm, and tell us about your wife and and uh, who she was at the time and how you put her through medical school. Well, she amazing, brilliant person. Um, she was always, a, I have to say, she is a person who is so capable at all of the things I wasn't, yet she saw the value in me and, and who I was. Um, and, and when I met her, I was already successful um, in my job. I, the top of, top of the game in the industry I was in, uh, very well respected. Um, I found the ways to hide that I couldn't read. I'd find the ways to hide other things that were difficult for me that I couldn't remember any of their names. Um, I, I, by then, I'd built up enough kind of workarounds um, while maintaining some integrity um, that uh, I had some capacity. But she saw through all of that and was willing to accept all that I was. and. I think part of it was that she had all these capacities that I well respected, yet even with those, she respected more the capacities of the heart and of, of integrity. Um, she didn't get lost in them. And uh, so um, that's a lot of what I think I found attractive about her. Um, and a beautiful person. But she was a, um, a clerk in a health food store and uh, doing uh, massage um, uh, and, and very good at both. She's a very capable person, um, but she didn't know what she wanted to do with life or her life. She, we were still sorting those, she was still sorting those things out. We got married and I asked her, you know, she was helping me with my kids. I got custody of my, both my kids. Um, and I said, what do you want to do with your life? You know, if you're helping me with my kids, I should do something for you. And she said she'd like to be a doctor. And I um, asked her if maybe a nurse would be all right, but she wanted to be a doctor. And so we went for it. And we put her through college. And um, 
she's spectacularly talented and incredibly brilliant person and um, been able to help a lot of people. Well, your story is just so um, uplifting, David. Uh, In a sense, it makes you angry as well at how society um, so often, way too often, fails our children um, and and each other. it, It really focuses on some of the most important questions that we face in our lives. How do we raise our children? How do we interact with people? How do we recapture the integrity of our daily interactions? And and I think your book is is almost Buddha like in its um, in its message. So I I want to thank you for it, David. Oh, thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. And and I'll tell you, it's it's as honest. And I've checked with as many people in the book as I can, you know, that are in the book as I can to make it as literal and honest as I can. But I think what's really in the book for me is it all, and this is what I wasn't sure of when I got fascinated with sociopaths, it's all about the heart and awakening and becoming integrated in ourselves, in our lives, and find out that it's all one heart. And, it, and a heart, I'm using it maybe differently than it's normally used, but um, it's a great relief. If people can just realize that, and that would help the kids, that would help you know all of us in, in our lives and change the world. Beautifully, beautifully said, David. Um, David Patton is the author of Dummy, a Memoir, and your website is dummyamemoir.com, right? That's right. So I commend it to all of my listeners, and David, I want to thank you so much for being with us. God bless you. Oh, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. Next week, our guest will be Ernie Bringus an ordained minister and the author of Jesus Gate, A History of Concealment Unraveled. For more interviews and reviews of fascinating books and films, check out our website at ncreview.com. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by Up With People, because we sing a song of peace.
stuff from Up With People because we sing a song of peace from their album A Common Beat. Up With People is a global education organization whose mission is to bridge cultural barriers and create global understanding through service and music. Their website is upwithpeople.org. They are members of the Positive Music Association, a terrific organization of singer-songwriters with lots and lots of soul. The PMA website is positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's it for today's show. I do hope you'll join us next week. And in the meantime, visit our website at ncreview.com. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.